Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 16. Shortly after I came to Richmond Hill some time ago, John Jones found out I like to play golf, so he said he would take me out golfing. So we went to this course, and we got to the first hole, and John got this brand new Titleist golf ball, a very, very expensive ball, and put it right there on the tee, and dribbled it off the tee into a creek in front of the tee box. He got out another really expensive golf ball, put it on the tee, and hooked it left into a pond. Got out another real expensive ball, put it on the tee, sliced it right into a field of grasses about waist deep. I said, John, why don't you use an old ball? He said, I've never had any old balls. (laughs) Okay, I made that story up. But... Here's what I don't make up is that when I play golf, I typically on the first tee get out an old ball because I don't think I'm going to hit it very well my very first swing. Maybe I should have more confidence, but the truth of the matter is I usually don't hit it very well the very first swing. But all who golf know of a wonderful, wonderful world that you who don't golf maybe have never heard, and it's the word mulligan. And golfers... Not real golfers, but spare golfers like me. Practice universally something called the mulligan. And that is on the first tee, if you hit it and you don't like the shot, you get to hit another one and play that instead. It's not real golf, but that's okay because we're not real golfers. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if we could have mulligans in life? I mean, there are a number of incidents in my life that come quickly to mind if life would give me a do-over. And I don't know about you, but without exception in my life, every one of those I wish I had a mulligan moments were made under the influence of what I call the flesh drive. They were not decisions that were made after much time in prayer and fasting and being led by the Spirit. They were, without exception, moments in my life where I was led by the flesh. I think my father Abraham would say the same thing. Because what we want to do tonight is look at the one time, I think more than any other in his life, when he wished he had a mulligan. Chapter 16, we'll start with verse 1, I'll read through verse 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, before we criticize Sarai too harshly, realize her plan was prompted by her belief In the promise of God that her husband would become a father. If she didn't believe that promise, if she thought Abraham was just hearing voices, 
If she didn't honestly believe that this Yahweh God was absolutely committed to seeing that Abram become a father, she never would have proposed this. You know, you know that my wife and I had several years of dealing with infertility and we couldn't get pregnant. And my wife never proposed this plan. (laughs) In order to see God's promise fulfilled, she is willing to sacrifice her most precious possession. The right to demand the exclusive affection of her husband. That's how strongly she believed this promise of God. And by the way, this practice was not frowned upon or socially unacceptable in their day. It was a fairly common thing. In fact, in Genesis chapter 30, you could read how Rachel comes to Jacob upset because her sister is giving Jacob children and Rachel isn't. And Jacob basically says, what do you want me to do about it? This is not my problem. Obviously, I'm able to father children. This is your problem. So she says, take my maid, Bilhah, and I'll have a son through her. So he sleeps with Bilhah. And it's interesting, if you look at the language, Rachel will then say, now I've been vindicated. Now I have a son, and she named him Dan. So in that culture, as strange as this sounds, if the wife gave to the husband a servant... Any children born would be considered the children of the wife. And so Sarai is saying, I am willing for this woman to be yours so that the child can be mine. She's willing to give up her most precious possession. The right to claim Abraham as her own exclusively. This is a tremendous thing she's suggesting she really does believe in God's promise but her faith in the promise is mixed with man's reason Sarai is now about 75 years old and she has concluded that any hope of her conceiving is in the past in spite of God's promise you see she believes in God's promise she doesn't believe she could be a part of that promise anymore Human reason is very good at determining that for which God is able. And so even though she considers that God is able to keep her childless, she doesn't conclude he's also then able to make her pregnant. And she ponders this promise, and she believes this promise, and she reasons, you know what? Come to think about it. God has told my husband he'd be a father. But God's never told me I'd be a mother. Maybe Abram and I misunderstood what God was saying. He said to Abram, your son will be your seed. But he didn't say anything about my seed. And so she concludes that she's going to have to help make the promise a reality. She responds the way human reason always responds whenever we're made to wait. We hate the waiting room. And we typically respond with an appeal to self-effort and a dependence on the flesh. And so she concludes, God has told us what he wants. Now it's up to us to make it happen. See, when I say that we struggle with the flesh drive, please don't hear me talk about sordid behavior. 
We often associate the word flesh with licentiousness and with immorality and with depravity. But often in the Bible, the flesh is the reference to those who want to accomplish the will of God, but not the way God wants it accomplished. The flesh drive seduces us into thinking that the end justifies the means. And let me tell you something about operating out of human strength. You can get results, but you never get a miracle. And the long-term consequences of operating out of the flesh trying to do the work of God will almost inevitably leave somebody wishing for a mulligan. So look what happens, starting in verse 4. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. What a mess. See, that's what the flesh does. Even if your intention is good, even if you think I'm trying to accomplish what God wants, if you operate out of the flesh, you create hostility. Notice first, it produces hostility on the premises. There's hostility all through these relationships. There's hostility between Hagar and Sarai. Because understand, Hagar was not seeking this marriage. But she couldn't refuse it. And her behavior wasn't laudable, but it was certainly predictable. Look at what the proverb writer wrote in chapter 30. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and a maidservant who displaces her mistress. The proverb writer says these are situations that guarantee Conflict. Two thoughts come to mind. Number one, two wives are not better than one. It's just not. I actually heard on sports talk radio the other day, they were asking the question, why is, what's wrong with polygamy? I mean, I know it's against the law, but literally, why is it a wrong thing to do? Well, the answer is obvious, Matthew 6. No man can serve two masters. And... While it was countenance in the Old Testament, you will not hardly ever find a situation in the Old Testament where polygamy was involved and there wasn't tension in the home. The other thing I want to say here, Egypt will catch up to you. Do you remember Abram went down to Egypt in an act of unfaithfulness? Where did Hagar come from? We can pay a heavy price for the times when we leave the place God told us to be. And Egypt caught up to Abram. So there was tension between Hagar and Sarai. Then notice there's tension between Sarai and Abram. She says to him, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. No, wait a second, Sarai. This was your idea. See, 
Her reaction causes me to remember that question men have pondered for centuries. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, is the husband still wrong? She is upset for him for simply doing what she wanted. But here's why. Sarai is not used to her hands being tied. She's a regal woman. And now she's in this situation where Hagar has become the legal responsibility of Abram. And both women know it. I mean, Hagar knows You can't touch me anymore. And Sarai knows it too. And there's tremendous tension now between these two women, these wives of Abram. There's tension, notice, also between Abram and both of his wives. And rather than act like the head of the house, Abram tries not to get involved. He chooses peace over real leadership. If the men are thinking when Sarai complains, that's just like a woman. The men, the women right now are probably thinking, you know, that's just like a man. Step up and be a leader. But that's not what Abram did. He says, your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. In other words, here's what Abram did. He returned Hagar to her status as Sarah's servant. He should have known what that would mean. The next word, Sarai, mistreated Hagar. This is not Sarai's greatest moment. That word mistreated is the same word that was used back in Genesis 15. When God told Abram, your descendants will be foreigners in a land for 400 years and they will be mistreated. Isn't it ironic The Egyptians, some years later, will mistreat Abram's children the same way his wife mistreated the Egyptian in their home. And so what does Hagar do? She takes off across the desert. And if you read where she was heading, she's on the road back to Egypt. Now, she has to be desperate. She is pregnant. And she's taken off across a desert. It's a mess. And no doubt each party is blaming the other as they all insist. You know, all I want to do is just accomplish the will of God. The flesh drive never improves relationships between men. And it doesn't help man's relationship with God either. You see, that's the unspoken word here. And I know I'm dealing a little bit with speculation, but I'm going to argue that not only was there tension between Sarai and Hagar, between Sarai and Abram, between Abram and his wives, but I'm going to contend tonight that the flesh produced hostility between God and Abram. The Scripture does not record God speaking again to Abram for 13 years. Now think with me. Why that number? In their culture, a boy became a man at the age of 13. 
I think God was saying, okay, Abram, for 13 years, you can be a dad to that boy. You can raise him to manhood. And then we will return to the promise. And God gave Abram a season to reap what he had sowed in the flesh. And, in fact, to some degree, the people of God are still reaping. Because I think this story doesn't just tell us that when you operate in the flesh, there's going to be hostility in the premises. I think it also says there's going to be hostility toward the promises. And I think this is very, very interesting now what we're about to get into. So look with me starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now a child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave him this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Berid. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she'd born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, by the way, side note, this is the first clear picture in the Bible of the God that cares for the outcast. We see it this early in Scripture that God has a concern not just for a small group of people, but for all groups of people. And she names him Yahweh Roy, the God who sees, because she is amazed. This is not like the gods of the Egyptians who only care about the prestige and the royalty. This is the God who sees even the most marginalized. But with his mercy came this prophecy. You will bear a son. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Now, that prophecy has a physical fulfillment because to this day the enmity between the Arab peoples who descended from Ishmael and the Jewish people that descended from Isaac still exist it has lived for centuries and millennia and so typically when people read that statement that's how they take this prophecy and that's not a wrong way to take it but I'm going to go somewhere with it tonight that I've never heard someone go Because I think the descendants of the flesh have always despised the children of the promise and that this reality reaches far past racial hatreds. I think it goes much deeper. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 4. And I want you to hear how Paul interprets this story because I think it is profoundly significant. Now here's the context in Galatians. Some people have come to these churches Paul has planted and they have tried to say, yes, 
you Gentiles can believe in Jesus, but you have to come through Moses. Jesus is the door, but Moses is the screen door. And you haven't been circumcised. And circumcision is the sign that you are a part of the covenant people of God. So you, if you want to be a part of the people of God, must add to your faith in Jesus the right of circumcision if you want to be Abraham's true heirs. Now Paul is going to strongly disagree with this. The gospel is at stake Do you have to add anything to faith in Jesus to be saved? And look what story he goes to. Chapter 4, verse 21 of Galatians. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born, notice, In the ordinary way. What does he mean? Flesh. God did not have in any way to be involved in the birth of Ishmael. It was the product of flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. What does he mean? It's a miracle. Isaac was a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now look what he goes on to say. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she was in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it's written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud. You who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And we'll get to that story later. We will see later that Ishmael had to be Removed from the family because of his uh, despising of the child of promise. And so it says, it's the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son shall never share in the inheritance of free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free Woman. You see, these Judaizers are saying, we're heirs of Abraham. And Paul is saying, yes, Abraham is your father, but the real question is, who's your mother? Are you descendants of Hagar or descendants of Sarah? He's contrasting a works orientation with a grace orientation in this allegory. By works orientation, I mean all approaches to God. And they're typically good people who want to do God's will. But just like Sarah, they think there's God doing his part and there's man doing our part. And we have got to help God accomplish his agenda. And here's what he's saying. If that's your orientation, number one, you're going to despise the grace orientation. 
And I think historically you see this in churches. That people that come out of a works orientation attack, accuse, criticize, and despise the grace orientation. He says also it's going to produce bondage. If you operate in a religion that depends primarily on human strength and human reason and human will, you are on the path to slavery. And finally, he says, if that's the choice you make, you'll never see miracle. Please understand, Ishmael... Ishmael's birth was not illegitimate, but neither was it supernatural. What Paul is saying, and I believe he's going all the way back to this story, and I believe the prophecy where the angel says he will live in hostility toward his brothers goes far deeper than just Arab-Jewish tension. I would argue that the real meaning there is primarily there is two ways to approach God. The way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. And they are going to live in conflict always. God wants us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the flesh drive... He's always going to resist this while insisting it just wants to do the will of God. See, here's the thing about the flesh drive. It deduces that expedience trumps obedience. It cares more about the product than it does about the process. But here's what the scripture is saying. God is not obligated to bless what he didn't ordain. The ends do not justify the means. Give you an example from Scripture, Moses. He deduces, according to Acts chapter 7, that God wants him to be a deliverer of the people of Israel. So instead of waiting on God, he acts in the flesh, he kills an Egyptian, and the whole thing results in a disaster. Because he tried in the strength of the flesh to do the will of God. Now, as a contrast to that, consider King David. Although he's not King David in 1 Samuel 24, he's fugitive David. And he's hiding with his men in a cave. And the Bible says delicately that King Saul came in, not knowing David was there, and went to relieve himself. And his men, operating in the wisdom of the flesh, said, here is your chance to strike him down and become king. And David says, essentially, how can I be doing God's will if I have to break God's will To do it. So David does not seek God's will in the strength of the flesh. But waits instead for God to keep the promise. And he does. See God wants us to be eager to do his will. But even more he wants us to be obedient to his will. Because only then will we see miracles. So here's the question I have for you tonight as we close. Where do you think I and we have settled for Ishmael instead of waiting for Isaac? 
I think this is a profound, incredibly significant question. Let me say again, folks, when I say that our struggle is with the flesh, it is not primarily about lasciviousness or immorality or drunkenness. When I say we struggle with the flesh, what I mean is we have this tremendous struggle to try to be the people of God in human strength instead of the Spirit of God. Think about this for a second. Where have you in your life settled for Ishmael instead of Isaac? Think about all the young people that grow up in our churches. And are they choosing their mates through prayer and fasting and purity and waiting on God? Or is the primary drive for choosing their mate the flesh and the external attraction? And then we want God to bless a path He never ordained. Why is it that in evangelical churches the divorce rate is as high as it is in the unchurched world? Could it be the flesh drive? Think about the way churches choose elders and even ministers. Is it through long seasons of prayer and fasting and seeking God? Or is it checking if they've been successful in business? And do they have charisma? And is their wife attractive? I'm telling you because I know the process many churches use. Much of the selection of leadership in our churches is driven by the flesh. But I think where I'm the most guilty here is that I have learned how to be a quite proper Christian in the power of the flesh. I know how to be nice. I know how to be a good neighbor and a decent person. I know the cliches. Most of us do. And I want to ask you a really penetrating question right now. If the Holy Spirit truly left us and we were no longer His temples, how much difference would it make this is an important thing to ponder how much of what we do for God is Ishmael because it could be totally produced by the flesh I want more than that I want to live a life that can't be explained by human strength and reason. I want to live a life where the miracle working of God is normal and not the exception. I want to live in the power of the Spirit. That's how Jesus lived. He resisted the flesh drive. Satan said to him, you want kingdoms? You want world rule? I can give it to you. He said, not that way. And I believe Jesus can help us do the same. So let's bow our heads right now.
And I'll ask you to take a moment and just ask God to show you some part of your life where you think the flesh might have too much influence. Be honest and let God convict you right now. Father, we want Isaac, but we have trouble waiting. Forgive us, convict us, and cause us to believe that the life led moment by moment in the power of the Spirit really is available. Let's close our prayer this way. Sing with me. My heart, my mind, my body, my soul, I give to you, take control. I Stand with me, please. I want you to read together with me a scripture I've chosen because I do think it's important to remember that it's not just that we seek God's will, but we seek God's way. That we care about process, not just product. That God has a way to live. And the means are as important as the end. Look at Psalm 25 with me. Let's say this together. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Amen. We're going to continue that very thought with our next song. And while we sing, if you would like to accept Christ tonight, come and let us know of your decision. Let's baptize you even tonight while we worship.